Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. And a bit of follow-up for episode 23, The Lord Chancellor, where we talked about Simon Winchester's book, The Perfectionists. Uh, We discussed a few things from that uh, related to precision measurement and uh, uh, one of the characters who came up in that story was Joseph Whitworth. Uh, He ended up becoming responsible for a number of important inventions over the course of his life, including some interchangeable parts for firearms, uh, improved measuring devices for uh, measuring things down to a millionth of an inch, uh, and a number of other things. In fact, uh, his name ended up being uh, put to the standardized screw system that he created. He created a standardized set of threads for nuts and bolts, and uh, that continues to live on today, although very few people outside of uh, certain industries are used to using Whitworth threads. Recently, the YouTube channel Smarter Every Day did a video discussing one of Joseph Whitworth's inventions, which was a field gun that was used during the American Civil War. And in fact, one of the uh, people at this reenactment day actually had a Whitworth gun that he had made. So Dustin, who was recording that day with high-speed cameras, was able to actually film this particular cannon going off, this gun going off, and uh, discusses that a little bit. Uh, Dustin's father spent his career working as a metrologist, and I believe he still does some metrology work now. And so they discussed a little bit about... Uh, Whitworth's inventions, uh, including the the millionth of an inch micrometer that he created, and also the three-plate method for flattening uh, surface plates. Mm-hmm. There's an, an interesting video, and uh, pretty remarkable what Dustin's father is still up to as a metrologist. And this is one of the advantages of living in Spacetown, USA, which is uh, Huntsville, Alabama, uh, which is where a large part of the space program is based out of. And uh, also Space Camp, if you ever get a chance to go down there. There is a great museum and rocket park uh, associated with the uh, the camp and uh, with the uh, one of the campuses there. So if you're ever in the area, uh, I highly recommend visiting. It's uh, an impressive museum. They have... Uh, one of the few complete Saturn V rockets there, which is impressive. It's lying on its side, and you can walk the whole length of it. Uh, but the, the museum there is excellent. And uh, one of the advantages of working in, in Spacetown, USA, is that everybody is basically doing something with the, the space industry there. So it's if you're in a job like metrology, that's likely the kind of things that you're going to be working on. What impressed me most about this particular video was that that high-speed footage that he was able to capture. I would love to have some time with one of those cameras someday. Yeah, Dustin's lucky. He's got access to a few very, very high-speed cameras, and some of his videos on his channel have been fabulous. He's he's shot, uh, I think the fastest thing I've ever seen, or I could find at least, was shooting some footage at 150,000 frames a second. Uh, this wasn't shot that fast, uh, but it was still, I think it was 50,000 frames a second watching this. Uh, bullet come out of the gun uh, it was it was quite impressive to see and uh, some of the other footage that he's created over the years has uh, has been equally impressive so if you want to see some great high-speed footage he he does a, a wonderful job of it and the nice thing about Destin is that he is actually a working physicist and is excellent at explaining the phenomena that you're seeing at high speed so it's it's not just a uh, you know pure you know visual glory of watching these high-speed shots he's actually explaining to you what's going on and he's showing interesting uh interesting phenomenon in his videos there's another video you came across this week yeah this one came across my radar today uh derek mueller at uh, veritasium we've discussed derek before in the past and and again he does an excellent youtube channel if if you're curious about the world he's uh he's an excellent person to follow and his video today was discussing uh, a test of general relativity. And again, this goes back to the perfectionists. Uh, in that book, there's a whole chapter about uh, precision timekeeping and the different clock systems that are in place now for doing 
high precision timekeeping and also a discussion of the GPS system. Uh, in this particular video, he discusses a problem that happened with two satellites that were sent up for the Galileo uh, system, which is the European equivalent of the GPS system that the Americans put up. In this case, the two satellites intended to be placed in orbit, I think around 26,000 kilometers up, uh, there was a problem with the propellant that was being used to, uh, to launch them from the rocket into their proper orbit. And the end effect of this propellant problem was that instead of being placed in a circular orbit, they were placed in an elliptical orbit. Uh, now, when you have very, very precise timepieces like that, and they're passing closer and further away from a high gravitational field, in this case the Earth, you can actually test the the relative times as they as it passes through that field, because according to general relativity, time will move slower as you approach a, a high gravity field and it will move faster as you move away from it. So they happen to have these extremely precise uh, Mazar clocks located in the satellites. And they were able to get more precise uh, and more accurate readings to prove ge the general theory of relativity uh, through the redshift that happens with uh, with the clock. So uh, he does an excellent job of explaining it. And, and he has the two scientists on the line uh, and talks to them about the experiment that went on. So they were able to turn this mishap of uh, this this unfortunate problem that happened during the launch and ended up turning it into a, a useful experiment. One of the most accessible descriptions of the theory of relativity that, that I've ever seen was presented by a young Filipino girl named Hilary Andales. And she put together quite a good video that I believe is available on YouTube too. We'll dig that up mm, okay. and stick it in the, the show notes. I, I can see exactly how Derek came to realize that this particular mishap would be a, a great way to prove uh, the theory of relativity. Mm. So my, my hat's off to Derek, as always, producing great videos. Yeah, Derek's, Derek's got, got some great videos, and he does a, a fabulous job. In fact, he created a PhD program for himself where he was combining his interest in uh, science and teaching science and how to better explain scientific principles using video. So his his entire career has been as an educator and explaining complex uh, science to people uh, in a way that they can understand. He does a, a fabulous job of it. It's, uh, it's certainly worthwhile watching his videos. It, again, he, he has a wide range of topics that he could, he discusses. And if you're curious about the world, he will talk about something that you'll find fascinating. Well, happy 2019, Chris. Yeah, welcome to 2019. This is our, uh, even though our last episode was released on January 1st, this is our first recording of the year. Yeah, I haven't actually spoken with you since last year. As the previous episode dropped at the exact same second that uh, the ball dropped in Times Square. Good timing. Mm -hmm. So how was your year of teaching? Yeah, so last year my themes were were sharing knowledge and timekeeping. Yeah, so back in episode 10, I believe it was, we talked about our themes for 2018. And my two themes for the year were going to be sharing knowledge and timekeeping. And so my uh, my sharing knowledge was primarily geared around uh, speaking and writing some papers, which I was able to get a few done. And then uh, also try and get uh, my YouTube channel started. And that's something I've Started getting off the ground. I haven't actually published anything yet, but it's uh, I've done a lot of the legwork to start uh, putting that out into the world. So that was my uh, my primary yearly theme for 2018 was uh, sharing knowledge. And of course, that's something that's going to continue. I don't think I'm going to stop that. Although this year I've taken a break from giving a paper at the Santa Fe Symposium. I'm just going to attend this year as a as an attendee and let other people do the work. But I will be back in 2020 giving another talk. That theme of sharing knowledge is something that it definitely got a good kickstart last year, and uh, I'll be continuing on with that. Well, having spoken last year at the Santa Fe Symposium, you do still get to partake in the, the speaker's trip this year, correct? 
That's right. One of the benefits, if you're, uh, if you've ever thought about speaking at a conference and and you have uh, something to to talk about with a group of metal workers, then uh, I highly recommend speaking at the Santa Fe Symposium. One of the the key benefits of that is the speaker's trip that takes place the four days prior to the symposium itself. And uh, all of the speakers from the previous year, as well as the speakers from this year, get together and we meet up in a city in the U.S. and spend a couple of days uh, touring around and seeing interesting things and eating good food and chatting with our colleagues who are going to be speaking. Uh, this year, we're going to be in Memphis, Tennessee for a few days. Uh, we're actually going to be staying at Graceland this time around and we're having dinner there. So we'll be touring around and seeing interesting things in Memphis this year and then heading off to Albuquerque for the conference itself. Sounds like fun times. Mm-hmm. And then also new on the agenda this year is the a new conference, which the Goldsmiths Company is putting on. Of course, we've spoken about the Goldsmiths Company before. Uh, Rich and I did a tour last year when we were in the UK back in May. They've decided to uh, team up with the Santa Fe Symposium, and they're using a very similar format to the Santa Fe Symposium, and they're going to be putting on a conference in London. That's in July, I believe. I'll put a link to the the conference website in the show notes. Uh, this one's a little bit shorter. It's only two days. I'm, I'm At this point, I'm planning on heading over. I'm not going to be speaking at this conference, but I will be heading over and looking forward to meeting up with people that I know from the UK and Europe who I'm sure will be attending and also meeting some new people who I don't know. So that'll that'll be good. And then the other theme that I had for last year was timekeeping. And that was geared around the idea of, of pushing myself into making my first watch and learning more about watchmaking. And that's something that I've been I've been talking about for years and years and years, and I've never gotten around to. So uh, pushing myself towards that goal was important. And while I didn't quite get my prototype finished to the level that I was happy with by the end of the year, it is still quite far along, and I'm I'm reasonably happy with the direction that it's going. Oh, you weren't pleased with the, that dial? <laughs> yeah, the dial is uh, a lot of people like the dial, but that's not going to uh, not going to survive for very long. Uh, I have a handwritten dial that I made because I I didn't have time to make up a dial before I went over to the UK in September. And unfortunately, I haven't gotten around to actually working on a proper dial. I've got some design ideas, but I haven't had a chance to sit down and and do it. So that's really the thing that I'm least happy with in terms of where that prototype was. Uh, I am well on my way to making prototype number two of the case. There are a few changes that I've made, including uh, shrinking the height a little bit. I managed to save a little bit of space in the height of the case. And so I'm uh, working on version number two of that right now and uh, hoping to have that done in the next uh, month or so and get started on the dial as well so that I can actually have a on a proper dial on there. Well, I look forward to seeing how that all comes together. And I particularly look forward to seeing the first of the dials that actually come off of your Gioche engines. Yeah, that I'm looking forward to as well. The... Uh, Adding the guilloche to the the dials is going to be nice, and um, I, I'm I am truly looking forward to having uh, some proper dials done for it. Part of the delay in in working on the dials is that I also need to be able to pad print the dials, and that's something that I'm um, I'm looking into. I haven't decided if I'm going to buy a pad printer or make one. I have a feeling at this point that I'll probably be making one because I haven't found a pad printer I'm happy with for a reasonable price. So. I think that um, I've got a few ideas for making my own pad printer, so I suspect that's the direction that I'm going to go. Yeah, to get them as precise as you need them for watch dials, either it will cost you a fair penny or you end up having to make them yourself. Yeah, the one of the problems I've found with a lot of modern watchmaking equipment is that it's all geared towards high production. And so you either need to find antique equipment that was geared towards small run work like what I'm doing or you buy modern stuff that is all geared towards people that are making thousands of watches a year and for me of course I'm not making thousands of watches a year and I I don't ever plan to you know I sort of need to balance that out and figure out what what makes the most sense and in the case of pad printers you know the pad printers that I've seen for sale are either very inexpensive and not particularly good 
uh, their manual, you know, sort of manual ones, or the good quality pad printers are all designed for doing, you know, a hundred dials an hour or something like that. And it's, it's just unnecessary for what I'm, what I'm doing. I'll, I'll never need to print a hundred dials in an hour. Uh, so I think that there's a, a balance in there where I can make something for a reasonable amount of effort that is quite precise and is still manual and I'll be happy with the results that I get out of it. Yeah, the pad printers that Rolex uses on their dials are made by TechaPrint. Uh, now, Rolex is obviously very demanding in, in the precision that they expect. The same machines are also used by mass market consumer electronic companies like Sony and Well, if if I ever get to within three orders of magnitude of the production that Rolex is doing, then uh, maybe I'll consider buying one of those. But I think in the meantime, the uh, a manual printer is probably going to do me just fine. Mm-hmm. And the precision that you can get with a, a well-crafted manual printer is fantastic, and it would be more than enough to meet your needs. Yeah, both of us have seen the video that uh, Hajime Asaoka has uh, put out on his YouTube channel. Unfortunately, he doesn't put out very many videos, which is too bad because the videos he does put out are, are really nice. But he's an independent watchmaker in Japan, and he's built his own little pad printer and has a few videos up on, on how he uses that. So I'll put a link to that video in the show notes so you can see what exactly pad printing is in terms of uh, being used on a dial. And uh, you can see see what he's done to make his. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of the yearly theme of timekeeping was uh, doing some courses and starting to get uh, into the kickstarting myself into the watchmaking part of things. And of course, that meant uh, going over to the BHI in September for the uh, basic watchmaking course. And uh, that was successful and uh, John Murphy was uh, was a great instructor and, and certainly worthwhile. I recommend anybody who's interested in doing that, even if they don't know if they want to get into watchmaking. It's an excellent way of finding out in five days whether it's something that you actually want to do or not. And as a continuation of that, I'm going to be going back over in May for their second watchmaking course in their series. Uh, this one is all about day-date complications, and automatic movements. Uh, so we'll be taking five days to disassemble a few different movements and learn the ins and outs of dealing with day-date mechanisms. And we talked a little bit uh, about your time at the BHI back in an episode earlier this summer. Yeah, we discussed that BHI course that I was on back in episode 26, No Longer Mangling Watches. Fortunately, I am, well, we say that I'm no longer mangling watches, although what I ended up doing about a week and a half after we recorded that was I ended up mangling one of the pivots on a uh, on uh, a watch movement that I was practicing on. So I am still mangling watches occasionally. It was the escape wheel, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was the pivot on the escape wheel of my movement, so, which I still haven't had a chance to repair yet. So that's uh, that's still on my list of things that I need to do before I go over again. Well, to your credit, that is one of the, the finer pivots in a, a watch mechanism. Mm-hmm. If you're going to break something that's difficult to repair, you may as well break the most difficult thing. So are you still planning to machine your own escape wheel? Yeah, at some point I, I'm going to. I haven't decided with this particular one how I'm going to handle it. I think I will probably uh, remove the wheel from the staff and just restaff that particular escape wheel to begin with uh, but at some point or another i do need to make my own escape wheel i, I my long-term intention is to make my own movement so at some point or another i'm going to need to try making all of these parts so i may as well you know give it a try on a watch that i'm not too concerned about or a watch movement in this case that i'm not concerned about this doesn't even have a, a case on it this is a basic copy of uh, 6497 uh, so i'm not too concerned about what happens with it i it wouldn't even bother me if the escape wheel was never repaired. However, it, it's just a good movement to practice on and experiment with. So I'm, I will try making a new escape wheel for it at some point. But in the meantime, I will make a new pivot for it and uh, put that escape wheel on the new pivot. Pretty sure that at least half a dozen of these escape wheels that uh, a fellow classmate of mine going through 
watchmaking school went through the first time he reassembled mm-hmm. it in the 6497. So you're not alone. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sure that I'm not. I know I know at least one other person on my course broke uh, broke a pivot while we were there. So yeah, it's it's not uh, it's not that rare. I've talked a little bit about my 2018 themes and how those went. Uh, what was your 2018 theme and how do you feel that went for you? My overarching theme for 2018 was simply tying up loose ends. Uh, so I won't get into the detailed minutia of what those loose ends were, but suffice it to say, I, I feel it was a successful year tying up just a lot of, of dangling loose ends. And so I'm quite pleased with the way the, the year played out. The only troublesome part is that uh, thanks to our good friend Entropy, the the cord is always fraying, so there there are always more loose ends to tie up. But definitely feel more ahead of the game than I did at, at the outset of last year, and uh, all the loose ends that I, I intended to tie up were successfully tied up by year end. Do you feel your things are a little bit more in control now than they were at the beginning of twenty eighteen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of that too is probably you know the introduction of a another young life to take care of uh, that wasn't in 2018 but still raising a, a young being um it was she was still one in in 2018 so it was uh, still still pretty fresh to the party uh, so there were a number of, of late nights and and whatnot you have a level of chaos with a few children that uh, i i don't have to deal with so i uh, my hat's off to you you're able to to juggle all of that and that uh, that's a lot of extra work most of my chaos is self-imposed <laughs> have you given any thought to how you want to go into 2019 and what your theme for this year is going to be so you and i were fortunate to to catch a, a preview screening of rams uh, a little while back and one of the things that that rams dear rams this is so this is the the documentary by Gary Hustwit about the the designer Dieter Rams, who was particularly well known for his design ethos that he implemented while heading up design for Brown for many years. Uh, most Canadians or, or Americans would would pronounce that Braun, and you're probably familiar with their radios and their their shavers and kitchen appliances. His fingerprint is, is very heavy upon those objects. But there was one point in the film where I believe it was a, a young student uh, who, or a recent graduate, asked him uh, what he felt uh, was the the most important thing to design, and uh, he brought up designing your environment, um, so your the space that that you occupy, and uh, that that resonated quite strongly with me, and it actually resonated with some feelings I had had throughout 2018. I have put a lot of work over the years into making my my workspace at at work as seamless and as efficient as possible. And if I look back to where things were when I first started there to where they are today, I mean, it's a a night and day difference and uh, impacting and being able to sculpt that environment and bring it up to, to the level of efficiency and just pleasure and joy to work in that I was able to over all these years was nice but i realized you know here in my own space at home i've kind of been neglectful of our our own homes there are these little friction points or things that could be nicer or smoother for for myself and for our family and for when i'm working on side projects you know sitting down at my bench i, I can lose quite a bit of time just trying to find a, a certain tool or whatnot i mean i still have a handful of, of boxes of tools from when we moved that I've yet to unpack. I kind of unpack a box as I need something. So I haven't taken the time or invested the time in designing and being intentional about my environment here at home. So my my goal or theme for 2019 is to focus more intentionality on that and then making uh, this space, this place that my family and I call home, uh, a more pleasant place to live and just sculpting and focusing on, on that environment and on designing our environment. So it's the, the year of the nest. I can certainly appreciate that. I am, uh, as we'll discuss in a minute, I'm 
it's one of the struggles I've been having as well. And we we have a lot of work that we need to be doing on this house as well to make it a little bit more pleasant to live in, particularly for our cold winters, which uh, today and yesterday have been particularly cold. And uh, we feel that quite a bit living in this house, which wasn't particularly well designed. So we need to uh, we need to improve on that as well. So I, I can certainly appreciate your desire to do that. Mm-hmm. They, you'll sometimes hear podcasters complain about podcasting with their air conditioning off and, and <laughs> how, how brutal that is and how they're suffering. Um, both you and I right now are more or less shut off from the, the heat sources in the rest of our house. I've actually shut down the HVAC for the entire house, so it's not to have any of that noise coming in over the mic. And uh, it is it is a balmy negative 25 degrees Celsius or so outside right now. Yeah. So that, that little air gap between the two panes of glass behind me here isn't doing a whole lot to keep this space nice and, and toasty for me. <laughs> do, you, do you have anything specific you want to do with your workspace or is this something that you, you want to do sort of general improvements? I mean, there are certainly things that I can think of off the, the top of my head, but I'm not holding myself to a, a specific checklist of things that I've got to go through and do this and then do that and do this. Um, I mean, at certain points in the year, I'll more than likely make some form of checklist for certain project areas. And I'm sure I'll, I'll have a, a nice honey-do list to, to catch up on as well with the, the rest of the house. As I, I think of these themes as we sort of touched on last year, more as a, a guiding light or just a, an overarching background process that sort of nudges and guides and, and directs my actions throughout the year. So there's there's no way to, to really fail at a, a yearly theme, as long as it's always informing what it is that we're doing. Um, so at the moment, no, there's nothing specific that I have in mind uh, for, for my own space. There are a couple things around the house, because I'm going to focus there first to make life better for my family and uh, there's actually a couple things i want to do outside that will impact my own little workspace in here the way i like to think of it is uh, when i was a teenager i got to man a tall ship for a time in in one one of the summers growing up and when we would be sailing you would pick a, a landmark if you're close enough to land or at nighttime, you'd pick a star, and you'd sort of point the the mast and target that star in order to make sure you stayed on course. While also, of course, taking a look at your your compass in front of you, and um, that's that's sort of how I see the, these yearly themes: is uh, just that that north star, that the guiding light that you're you're tracking, or maybe not even be the north star. Maybe you're you're following Orion's belt, but uh, just just following along a, a given tack or course and you know you may need to, to deviate from that now and then but just always coming back on course and um, being able to evaluate and, and reevaluate uh, what it is you're you're doing and focusing your your time and attention on yeah for those who maybe haven't heard the previous episode that we talked about our yearly themes from 2018 this is something that we came up with from listening to Cortex, which is one of our favorite podcasts that we both listen to with uh, CGP Gray and Mike Hurley. And this is something they started discussing a few years ago. Uh, the most recent episode they talked about it on was the first episode of this year, episode 79. And they talked about their yearly themes for 2019. We'll put a link in the show notes to this most recent episode, and they have links to some of their earlier years as well. Those are worth going back and listening to to sort of get a sense of what they're doing with it. Just like you, I, I like the idea of a yearly theme versus a sort of a set of goals uh, because a set of goals are very absolute and it's it's very easy to to fail at a goal, especially if it's something that you're trying to do on a more consistent basis. If you say, oh, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week. Well, the first week that you don't go to the gym three times in that week, you've sort of failed at your goal. So the, I, I like the idea of the, the yearly themes a little bit more than resolutions, and um, I, I find them a little, little bit more instructive in my life rather than particular resolutions or goals. Yes, uh, absolutely. Now, what's your theme then for 2019? Are you going to have uh, a multi-pronged approach again? 
I think I'm going to do multiple themes again this year. I, I find that a single theme is maybe a little too restrictive for me, and uh, I'm trying to trying to get a lot done with with my year. So this year I have two themes that I really want to focus on. Of course, last year I was spending a lot of time learning new things, and and that's never going to stop. And I also was spending a lot of time teaching things to people, and and again that's not going to stop. But uh, this year. The first thing that I really need to focus on is organization. Uh, those of you who follow me on Instagram will have seen a, a post that I put up today of the uh, disaster that my shop is. And John can attest to uh, just how much of a, a disaster my shop is from the few times he's been out here and seen it in person. And just like you, I find I spend a lot of time looking for tools and looking for things that I'm, I know that I have and, and I know that I want to use. And they're they're maybe not at hand because it's things are poorly organized. Now, part of my problem right now is a lack of space, lack of floor space, and that's something that I'm trying to improve by finishing my basement studio, and that will certainly help with the organization. And uh, unfortunately, it means that it's going to become far more chaotic before it becomes more organized, but that will certainly help. And I also have a severe lack of storage space in my primary shop. So that's something that I need to improve this year by building a, a shed that I can store some things in that I don't need on a regular basis and that can be stored sort of outside and also some shelf space that uh, that I desperately need. So that's that's the first thing that I'm focusing on this year is organization and trying to get myself into a place where it's easier for me to work and there is less friction when I sit down and say, all right, I need to deep draw some pen caps. Well, right now, if I need deep draw pen caps, it's a nightmare for me to get everything out and try and find all of the mandrels and and punches and dies and things like that that I've made over the years that, that I need for that particular pen cap. And so I, it needs to be easier for me to do that kind of thing and, uh, and not quite as frustrating as it is, has been. So uh, the year of organization is, that's the first thing. Hmm. I'm sure Tamara's going to love hearing that because... Uh, I, I'm horribly disorganized right now, and and I desperately need to uh, to improve that. Yeah, organization really is is key to helping to eliminate the those friction points. Because when you do have those, those just even if it's the smallest little little bit of friction, can really just throw off any chance of of being in flow and remaining in flow or, or dropping into a, a flow state in the first place. Which is when you know the the creative work really starts to fly. So like if I want to work on a, a side project, you know, coming home after a, a long day at work, if I first have to spend 20 or 25 minutes setting something up, it's unlikely I'm actually going to to do it that evening. Um, you know, I may make a bit of headway, maybe start to get things set up, or I might just say, you know, I'm, I'm just too too tired for that to, tonight. And then you you put it off, and then you put it off another day and another day. Whereas if you have things organized and set up and ready to go, when you have that urge to create or to work on something, you can just drop right into it and, and be in the zone far more quickly than you would otherwise be able to if you're stumbling around trying to, to look for a, a particular little holder or, or cutter or some obscure tool that you need for this particularly obscure task. Absolutely. We talked earlier about the broken pivot on my escape wheel. And one of the reasons why I haven't really tried to repair that or build a new one yet is because my Derbyshire watchmaker's lathe is, you know, sort of under a pile of junk right now on my, on my bench. And the collets for it are sort of sitting in boxes, sort of buried underneath the bench right now. And it's frustrating to actually do work on there. And again, the cutters aren't sort of all mounted on tool posts and easily available and things like that. So those are the kinds of things that I need to improve so that when I break a pivot on a on an escape wheel, it's very easy for me to take it off of the staff that it's on and make a new staff and i should be able to sit down at my lathe and over the course of an hour or two have all of the tools and materials on hand to be able to quickly make something like that 
and that that kind of thing right now is just not possible so uh, by the end of this year my goal is to sort of have a few key things that i do things like you know making watch cases making some of my pens you know those sorts of things and and be able to easily sit down and and work on any of those things and be able to make some headway on on making things of course there's always frustrations whenever you're making something uh, maybe it's not turning out the way that you want it to maybe it's not um you know you're you're having some technical struggles with something but that that's you know that's all part of making it i'm i'm happy with that it's the the frustration of dealing with those you know those challenges of not having tools available not having machines readily available that that's something i shouldn't have to deal with at this point and and that's uh, something my i desperately need to uh, to fix in uh, in 2019 yeah the the unknown unknowns are just part of the process but the the unknown knowns those those can be frustrating like i i know i have this tool i just don't know where it is <laughs> that's that's right and then the so that leads into the second theme that I really want to focus on this year, and that is production. Uh, I've spent the last few years really working on learning new skills and experimenting heavily on things, and I'm always going to spend time experimenting on new techniques and whatnot. I, I you know, I've got some enameling techniques that I want to experiment with this year, and I think I'm that's what I'm going to be talking about next year at Santa Fe Symposium. But uh, one of the problems is that in all of that learning and all of that experimentation and the disorganization, I have not been able to focus on producing things. And so if you said to me today, oh, I want that pen, you know, can I can I buy that pen from you? It would be frustrating for me to get up and running and, and actually make a couple of those pens or the watches, for instance. I, you know, I'm experimenting with making these watch cases, but by the end of the year, I need to be making some watches that I can actually sell. And... So this year, the you know is is definitely going to be a year of production. I need to have processes in place where I can sit down and over the course of a few weeks make a few things. So if I want to say, all right, the month of September, I'm making a half a dozen watches this month, or I'm making a half a dozen pens or something like that. Uh, that that's an important goal for me this year. So the first half of the year, I think, is going to be focused primarily on the organization part of it. But with the goal in mind of thinking about production and thinking about how that works, sort of in the theme of both of those themes, I've been spending a lot of time looking at what uh, guys like Jay Pearson at Pearson Workholding has been doing with lean manufacturing. And uh, that's something that came out of Toyota, I believe, back in the 80s, where they were trying to pr- improve their processes to to make their cars more efficient and their their assembly lines more efficient the sort of the idea behind lean is to constantly improve in small ways the things that you're doing and a big part of that is organization and making sure that you've got the tools on hand to be able to work and make sure that there's as little friction as possible when it comes to making something now in the case of of a lot of the people that are using lean manufacturing they're producing a large number of very few items and so it's it's easier for them to actually uh you know actually work with with that kind of mentality but in my case i i'm still producing a small number of things i've got you know half a dozen pens that i produce and by the end of the year i'll have one or two watch models that i'll be producing so i i should be able to create processes that will make it easy for me to to make those things uh because even though i'm you know, I'm an artist and a lot of the things that I'm making are one of few pieces uh, and and in many ways more art pieces than than anything. I do still have to think about it as a production uh, method. I, I have to think about the easiest ways for me to make things. And, and that's important because I am a single person by myself making things. I can't I can't afford a lot of inefficiencies when it comes to making something for for sale. Otherwise, I just can't afford to produce it. I, you know, nobody could afford to buy it. If if it takes me six months to make a single watch, and, and unfortunately, I just can't uh, can't sell things at the the price that would I would need to to justify spending six months making a watch when really I should be able to make that in significantly less time. You know, in the order of a week or two instead of instead of months. 
It's not to say you can't, just that you can't yet. Well, yes, you're right. And and the thing is, at some point, I will probably be selling watches, which do take me six months to make. But the work that's involved in making those and the outcome justifies the months worth of work. Whereas right now, I'm making a watch case, which, you know, granted, I'm I'm experimenting with watch cases right now because I've never made watch cases. So there is a learning curve involved in making my first watch. But the watch case that I've designed is not so complex that it should take me six months to make or the dial shouldn't take me, you know, these these dials shouldn't take 100 hours to make, right? Even some of the most complex dials that someone like Breguet makes, for instance, are, you know, maybe 40 or 50 hours maximum worth of worth of work to produce a dial. And even that's extreme. So, you know, I, I you're right. At some point, I'll I'll be making watches that can justify that that price tag. But this watch and and what I'm what I intend to make in the short term certainly doesn't uh, doesn't justify that price tag. Yeah, the the time it takes to build a watch from the raw materials, you really are looking at at least half a year to a year worth of work. Mm-hmm. And um, we've talked about Rajep Rajepi quite a bit. In the last couple of episodes, but uh, he came up again and then recently. There was a fairly extensive interview on watches by SJX, and one of the things that was interesting to me, and I think I actually knew it before, but it didn't stick, is just how much outsourcing that he does for the raw parts manufacturing, and that the the touch that Acrivia and, and Regep bring to the watches is really in that finishing and, and the final adjustment. Because I think something that can tend to hold me back or, or have me stumble on, on different projects from time to time is trying to do everything myself and not taking mm-hmm. that step to, to outsource a certain part or certain process. That's something that I'm realizing there there's some value in that. There's a romanticism to doing everything yourself, uh, but you can end up holding yourself back if you try and do absolutely everything. And just looking at what, Regep has been able to achieve in a relatively short time is remarkable. And a big part of his ability to do that has been to cleverly outsource areas that he, he needed to, to be able to realize the, the, the dream or the vision that he had for, for a particular piece in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is something that I struggle with a lot, and this is something Rich and I talk about quite a bit because I'm in a similar position where you know he he has a couple of people that are there with him, including his brother. I'm here by myself working on things, and there is a frustration if you're trying to make everything yourself, if you're trying to do everything yourself. It's very difficult to try and do it all now. He has some advantages in being in in Switzerland to what he's doing. He has access to people who can cut crystals for him or make balanced staffs for him or make a you know a component for him or something like that. He has access to people in the industry who are doing small runs of precision work for people. That's something that's that's a little more challenging for us here in Canada because there just is not any kind of watch industry here. So if I want to talk to somebody and say, listen, I, I need, you know, I need a bunch of, um, of escape wheels for my watch. Trying to find somebody here to do that is, is very difficult. There's, there's really no industry for that. Uh, same thing if I want somebody to laser engrave dials for me. Finding somebody with a machine that is accurate enough and powerful enough to be able to engrave precious metals is challenging it's you can't just use one of the consumer grade laser engravers out there and start engraving silver or palladium 500 the lasers are just not powerful enough to to do that kind of work so it is a bit of a challenge and that's something that i struggle with a lot you know it's it's tough sometimes to let go of it as well just because i'm used to having control over every part of the production I'm used to being the person who does it all. So, for instance, with my pens, the only things that I'm not producing in there myself are the nib and feed. And so I'm used to knowing that the casting is done properly because I'm the one who did the casting. 
I, I'm the one who's doing the engraving. I'm the one who's doing the inlay work. I'm the one who's doing the engine turning work and, or the enamel work or whatever it happens to be. And, and having control over that process so that I know it's been done properly is something that's, it's difficult to let go of. So I, I have a huge amount of respect for what they've done. And, and yes, you're right. They've, they've let go of some of that and they've, they've said, we're not going to be able to do all of this. And so we're going to have other people do it. In my case, I'm releasing some of that control in my first watches by having movements that are being made by other people. You know, of course, the dream is that I would love to be making my own watches completely from scratch. But the reality is that I'm not in a position where I could do that. And I, I have a lot to learn before I could do that. So buying movements from Eterna makes my life easier. It means that I can actually produce a watch and sell it sometime in a, you know, sort of this year. And I'll do a little bit of finishing work on those movements probably just to clean some things up and, you know, maybe do a little bit of anglage on on the movement so that they're a little bit nicer than they they are from the factory. But at some point you have to produce something. You have to make something that you can actually sell. And that means relying on other people to do it uh, or to do something, right? Whether that's producing the boxes that you're going to sell the the, the watches in or uh, designing a website or designing a logo. Uh, all of those are things that at some point or another, if if you're not good at them or if you don't have the time to do them, you need to get some help and you need to have somebody somebody give you that uh, that assistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the challenge lies in, in deciding what, what those things are that you're going to, to let go or just simply admit that, that you don't have the, the bandwidth to, to take on or to learn to take on well. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the other things in, that I deal with is materials. And a lot of the materials that I'm, that I'm working with are precious metals that are easy to get. Uh, some cases it's niello, which I have to make myself because there's nobody out there making it. One of the materials I've started working with more recently is uh, Damascus steel. And that's something that I could certainly make myself, but it would be difficult for me to make and I would, I would struggle with it. And so that's why I've, I've been buying Damascus steel from Chris Blue. He's an expert in doing this. He does a lot of it. He produces a huge amount of Damascus. He can make a piece of Damascus for me quite easily. Whereas if I were to make it myself, I would struggle with it and I would have challenges. Same thing with Mocha Megane. That's something I'm going to be playing with again. And I will probably try making a few pieces of Mokame myself just for the experience of doing it. But for production pieces, I'm going to go to Chris and say, look, I need this this Mokame. Can you make it for me? Because he has the processes in place to make it. He will be able to to make it in a fraction of the time and for significantly less cost than I would be able to. So these are all important things to consider when it comes to making something. We talked a little bit about pad printing earlier and me making a pad printer. I've made a lot of my own tools in the past, and that's something that I struggle with is how much do I spend on buying tools versus making tools? In some cases, it's a very easy decision, like with the pad printers. I can't justify spending tens of thousands of dollars on a pad printer uh, where I'm going to be printing dozens of watches a year. It doesn't make sense for me to spend the tens of thousands of dollars on that. You know, for something like um, a CNC mill, well, right now I'm in the process of retrofitting my tag CNC mill that I use for a lot of my work and putting ball screws into it. And, you know, for the cost of buying another one with ball screws in it, it, it's worth it for me to spend a couple of weekends um, manufacturing new mounts for the, the ball screws and things like that. And and turning it into turning the existing mill that I have into a CNC mill with with ball screws in it and making it more accurate. Once I can justify having a better mill, though, I am going to go to somewhere like Haas Automation or Matsura or somebody like that. And I'm going to say, look, this is what I need. Build me a mill that can do this or build me a CNC lathe that can do this. Um, but until then, I always have to balance out do how much money do I spend on buying the tool versus spending my time making the tool, and uh, that's a, that's a tough balance as well. Well, your two themes for the year certainly feed into one another. I think the organization will will pave the way for the production, and uh, hopefully the 
production will eventually pave the way for you to be able to invest in some of these more expensive tools. Yeah, that's certainly the goal. And somewhere in there, I'm going to have to, somewhere between the production and the uh, the better tools, I'm going to need to find a, a different location to store them in because one of the challenges I have right now is I, I have a small shop space. I have about 800 square feet of shop space right now. And uh, I also have access to domestic power, which here in North America means 220 single-phase power. Uh, a lot of these bigger machines require more more electricity and uh, often three-phase power. So that's a challenge that I'm going to have and also more space than I can I can justify. Uh, some of these bigger machines need 14, 15 feet of clearance in the height. That's something that I just don't have in my existing shop. So hopefully... Um, I'll be able to make the first sort of 20 or 30 watches in a, in my small shop space that I have now and be able to sell those. And that, that will allow me to get into better facility and uh, get into better machines to make it a little bit easier because I do always want to be the one making the, the watches. And some of that will be through the assistance of, of computer controlled machines, but some of that will allow me to, spend the time and focus on the things that humans are much better at than machines spend time focusing on things like the finishing the hand finishing like Recep is doing or Carrie Voodlinen is doing uh, that's that's something that humans excel at which machines can't do very well so uh, those are the kinds of things that I'll always want to focus on same thing with the engine turning uh, that's something that humans are uh, are excellent at but machines are very poor at yeah, it's a it's always a a balance and a struggle, but uh, hopefully, this gets me down the path of being able to work on more of the things that I want to work on in those watches. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at offhours. John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. We've talked about my uh, Apple Watch obsession, which doesn't really relate to my mechanical watch obsession, but I did decide to upgrade my series two apple watch into a series four apple watch so just after christmas i bought myself one of the aluminum series four watches without cellular service in it thought i would try that for a little bit and see what i thought about it and the idea being that uh, the slightly less expensive ones i i might be willing to uh, replace more often and maybe be willing to uh, beat them up a little bit more in the shop because of course they don't have sapphire crystals and hard cases but um i ended up returning it after about 10 days oh really why was that yeah and i ended up upgrading to the stainless steel one (laughs) i missed i missed the weight of it i i just couldn't do the the light aluminum watch um it's funny because years ago i wore a citizen eco drive made out of titanium and at the time, I liked it quite a bit. It was uh, titanium is really nice because it takes on the temperature of your body quite quickly, and it's um, because of how light it is, it basically disappears off your wrist. But I found with this one, it was driving me crazy that it was so light, and I had gotten I've become so used to heavy watches now. Between the stainless steel Series Two Apple Watch that I wear. Uh, or that I was wearing, and even my own watch, which is made out of silver and is uh, even heavier than the uh, stainless steel watch that um, that I had. Yeah, I found that um, that the aluminum watch was just too light and it was driving me crazy. So I, uh, I ended up returning it and getting the stainless steel version. Uh, so I've got the black stainless steel Series 4 now, and uh, so far so good. I'm quite happy with it. So which size did you go with? Well, I, I've got larger wrists, so I decided to go with the 44 millimeter watch, uh, which is the larger of the two. And I have to say, between the Series 2 watch that I had and this one, it is uh, 
a night and day difference between these watches. The speed is significantly improved. It's it's considerably faster than than my Series 2 watch was. And the display on this is absolutely gorgeous. It is significantly larger because not only did they increase the size of the case slightly, but they've also pushed the OLED display out towards the edges of the the crystal more than before. So you have a twofold increase in screen size between the increase of the the case and the increase of this the amount of space that they're they're using. So the the buttons are massive now on this on screen in terms of of typing things in like for instance your passcode. Nice bright gorgeous display. So yeah, I'm super impressed with the new watches. They are uh, they're certainly fast, they're certainly big and bright. If you've considered getting uh, an Apple Watch in the past and you were put off by how slow they were because certainly some of the early ones were were quite slow. Try one of these ones. They are impressively fast in terms of their performance. Everything is snappy and uh, apps that were not really usable before are now usable. Uh, things like uh, Press to Record, which is a voice memo app that I, I like to use on my phone. And I used to have it on my Series 2 watch, but I never used it because it would take 30 seconds or 45 seconds to launch the app. And now when I use it on my Series 4, I press the record button and it just starts recording immediately. So a big, big improvement in um, overall performance and usability of the Series 4 watch. It's nice that you'll be able to use all the, the same straps that you had for your Series 2 as well. So what did you purchase the the Series 4 on? I just got the the simple rubber strap, even though I've already got a couple of them. So I, I do have a couple of different straps now that I use, and uh, I'm a big fan of the link bracelet, although now I've got a silver-colored link bracelet with a black-colored watch, so that's a bit odd. And I do also have a, uh, a nice leather, black leather strap that I, uh, I actually wear quite a bit with it, and uh, that I've been quite happy with. So it's an impressive little watch, and, and I'm pleased with uh, the way that it looks and the way that it performs. So you think you'll ever take the the plunge and drop 600 bucks on the the black link bracelet while they're still available uh i would love to but i don't know don't know if i can justify it i really love my link bracelet my silver one and um we'll see i maybe later in the year uh, as you say there there's a chance that they're going away at some point so i may buy one just because you know they're not going to be around forever or I may also see if there's one that's uh, that I can find used that's a, a slightly more reasonable price. But yeah, we'll uh, we'll see. I, I'm a big fan of the silver link bracelet that I have, so it would be nice to have one that uh, that matches the the watch that I've got. Now, I've not handled the the all black stainless steel. I've handled the just the regular stainless steel in both sizes, and uh, I, f- I found them to be uh, deceptive in their their apparent thinness. But I would imagine the the black one is a little more honest in in how thick it actually appears versus is on the wrist yeah that may be i haven't actually seen one on the wrist before so i don't know how it is in terms of feel i'm less concerned with how it looks in terms of thickness and more about how it wears i I am a little concerned because the stainless one the, the silver one that i've got is quite scratched up because i wear it in the shop all the time so it gets abused from being being worn in the shop and i'm curious to see how the dlc coating that they have on this on the bracelet holds up to the way that i wear a watch uh, because for me this is a sort of a utility watch it, it's not something that i i keep in a safe most of the time and only bring out when i'm you know going out somewhere special uh, this is a watch that i use every day and i wear it whether i'm banging around on the inside of a lathe or you know milling something or you know welding or whatever it is that i happen to be doing i am i am wearing this watch all the time the watches that i'm producing for instance my uh, my own watches i i would never wear it in the shop it, it wouldn't hold up to that kind of abuse but uh, these are are more utility watches for me so i i don't know how well that dlc coating would hold up on the the straps and that's uh that's the only concern that i have at this point well, i don't know how it would take to welding but from the handful of people i i know who have the dlc models including one of whom is a 
machinist by trade. Uh, they they hold up really well, and uh, the, the machinists in particular is still the last time I saw it was looked brand new, unscathed. Hmm. I've heard that as well, and I, at least I've heard that from people who aren't sort of handy people, like they're not doing a lot of a lot of machining or they're not doing a lot of shop work. And they've all said that their DLC watches have held up significantly better than their stainless steel ones without any coating on it. Um, so I think that this would probably hold up better than the silver colored ones. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to buy the um, the black DLC uh, watch instead of the silver one again. Because uh, first off, I like the look of it. I think it, I think it looks good. But I think it's going to look better for longer than the stainless one will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would be very surprised if it does not. We'll see. I, I suspect at this point, because I've gone for the stainless one, I don't think I'm going to go for a Series 5 watch unless there's something, you know, some sort of astronomical improvement with it. I still haven't decided if I'm going to turn on the cellular service on this or not. I don't know how much use I would get out of having cellular service on it. Uh, so I may just leave that off, but we'll uh, we'll see. And uh, we'll see what they do for the Series 5, but I suspect I'm going to wait until the Series 6 watch before I upgrade this. 